Hello, everyone. This is Martin Hugh. Welcome back to another episode of the show. One thing before we jump in, if you're going to Art Basel Miami at the end of this month, I am throwing a party there with Drew Barman from Rick House Dow in collaboration with my new members club project called Maya. It'll be at Sweet Liberty, a top 50 cocktail bar, which is very near the convention center where Art Basel will be held. So if you want to join us, just DM me on Twitter at TheMartinHugh to get an RSVP. It is first come, first serve, so be quick as there are only a few spots left. As for Maya, we're opening pre-sale minting for friends and family before the official launch. So if you're interested, again, reach out to me on Twitter and I'll share more about the project with you. All right. So my guest today, very excited to have him on the show. Michael Stelsner. Michael Stelsner is someone that I have been following and learning from for years. He is the founder of Social Media Examiner and Social Media Marketing World. His content has helped millions of businesses all over the world, including my own marketing agency. He's the host of the Social Media Marketing Podcast, as well as the Web3 Business Podcast. Michael is an author, speaker, and all-around fantastic communicator with a passion to share knowledge with others. As you'll learn from this convo, Michael got into NFT shortly after the pandemic hit, and since then has joined a variety of projects such as Proof, Moonbirds, that's how we connected, Mutiny Apes, Azuki, VFriends. In this episode, we explore what drew Michael to the Web3 space, how Web3 can help the future of businesses, the challenges and opportunities that come with the space, community building, and much more. I hope you get to enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. So without further ado, let's jump right in. Michael, it's great to finally meet you. Likewise. Thank you for having me, Martin. Um, I thought we would start by painting a picture of what drew you to communication and marketing in the first place and how it led you to build what we know today as Social Media Examiner, which is the largest social media marketing resource out there. From what I've read, you've started your first creative services agency in 1996. Is that correct? Yeah, I know. It sounds like forever ago. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what sparked that initial venture? Uh, well, the short version of the story is I was working in corporate America as a marketer and I got wrongfully terminated uh, because of who knows why. I mean, it's just not worth repeating, but that was my opportunity to no longer work for, you know, a business, if you will, and try to go out on my own. So I started I started a, a creative agency in the 90s. And back then we were doing things like creating um, creating annual reports for corporations, which they still do today, which were physical things, creating um, collateral that was used when you're at a conference, like the physical handouts the sales team would use, uh, also creating logo designs and actually even website designs. We started doing early website designs and most of the businesses we were working with were in the high-tech industry. So, you know, over the years, I got a chance to work with really big brands like Microsoft and Hewlett Packard and Motorola and Qualcomm and those kinds of companies. How have you seen the market change over the years and has your approach to marketing communication pretty much stayed the same? <laughs> well, let's, let's be clear. Um, when I started, it was before the internet, right? Or just as the internet was being born. So back then the way you marketed, it was totally different than the way you market now. And even the way you marketed a few years ago. So yeah, there's nothing about it. That's the same, you know, in the olden days, if you wanted to get someone's attention from a marketing perspective, you had to mail them or you had to pay for advertising on radio, television, newspaper. Um, and pretty much that was it, you know, that was the full extent of it. And it was, it was very few things, very expensive. And when the internet came around, all of a sudden it was the great intermediary. It, it was the great 
the, the way we described it back then was it allowed anyone to compete with the biggest companies in the world. And now the biggest companies in the world were born after that, right? So when you think about all the big brands, except for Apple, which was around before then, but companies like Amazon, companies like Facebook, uh, these companies were born out of the success of the internet. And the internet was the great uh, disintermediary is what we called it because it allowed anyone using distributed free technology to essentially compete. And mm -hmm. fascinatingly enough, now we're in a world, it's very different, feels like before the internet where we have a few companies that control everything, right? Google, right. Amazon, Facebook. So it's fascinating how things started centralized before the internet. They became decentralized in the early days of the internet. They became centralized again. Um, and now with Web3, they're starting to get decentralized again. That's exciting. Web3, you know, to... To quote one of your, um, something you said on another podcast, and let me know if like I'm misattributing this, but you said, I believe in investing in things and seeing if they work. And if they don't, I'm moving on. So you strike me as someone that's fairly curious and you like to experiment a lot. So what brought you into the Web3 space and what do you see that, how do you see that evolving over time? Well, first of all, I do believe that the word experiment is really important. If we can riff on this for just a little bit. Um, I'm a serial entrepreneur, meaning I've just started a lot of businesses. I generally do one at a time, you know, serial instead of parallel. But the idea here is that um, we try things when we're entrepreneurs or creators. And if we position them as an experiment, then it's completely okay for them to fail. But if we don't position them as an experiment, then all of a sudden we put all our eggs in one basket, the basket falls out from underneath us, and we're in trouble. So I love the idea of starting experiments and seeing if they work. When I launched Social Media Examiner in 2009, it was a blog. Nobody knew what a blog was. I called it an online magazine. And it was a great experiment. I wanted to see whether or not I could help educate the world on social marketing. Because back then we were coming out of a recession. 2008 was the Great Recession. Everyone was out of work. It was very difficult times. And everyone was looking to this new technological innovation called the social Right. And this was the birth of Web 2. And you're starting to see the parallels, aren't you, as I'm talking, right? Yeah. Because we're in the exact same situation right now. But back then, my experiment was to um, see whether or not I could be somebody who maybe could be successful. You know, I was a nobody in the world when I started in 09. You only had Facebook, you only had Twitter, and you had LinkedIn, and that was it. You know, all these other social platforms weren't even thought of, they weren't even born yet. And there were lots of individuals like there are today who were the thought leaders and I was a nobody. So what I decided to do differently was to train the world on how to do this stuff for free by writing articles. And the written medium was really popular back then because blogging was like all of a sudden a platform that allowed uh, anyone to compete against traditional media, right? The, the print mm. publications. So I became very big, very, very fast. And was, was able to build a very successful business. And a lot of the people, you know, aren't really around anymore during that era. So what was an experiment, Social Media Examiner became the thing. But I figured it would last maybe for three years, max. Here we are 13 years later. So um, the concept of an experiment is really important. Like you should try things and see if they stick. And if they don't, be relentless about stopping them. So now getting into Web 3... One could say that so many of us, maybe you included, are experimenting right now. You know, we've got something else that maybe is our full-time thing, or maybe you've gone all in. 
Um, but I like to look at things as an experiment. So right now my experiment is I'm doing a new podcast, right? That I launched in January called Crypto Business, which is getting renamed Web3 Business. And I'm starting to see whether or not I can help do what I've done in the past again, right? Which is to translate some of the confusion, some of the technical complexities into everyday language that entrepreneurs, marketers, and creators can latch onto and build something with, which is exactly what I did in the world of social. Yeah, it's interesting to see how um, history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it does rhyme. 100%. I've seen that you've dabbled into many different communities, whether it's Proof, Moonbirds. I know you, you hold some V friends too. What have you seen as an opportunity for other businesses, such as you know Web2 traditional businesses? What have you seen as an opportunity for them to develop there? And what do you see as challenges moving forward? Yeah, first of all, I have gone down the deep, deep dark rabbit hole. And I've gotten into a lot of projects, Lazy Lions. Uh, I've gotten into Azuki, Cool Cats, V Friends, um, crazy down the Moonbirds rabbit hole. Um, and a lot of collections that aren't even worth mentioning because they're not really, they haven't really had any critical mass. But I've purchased hundreds of uh, different NFTs and, and tried to study really the business side of it, right? Because you know, we are in, as we're recording this in late 2022, early 2023, we're in this market where it's like in the trough of disillusionment, according to Gartner's hype cycle, right? Like there's always these, uh, you know, the hype has reached its capacity at the height and now it's heading back down. But this is a process that is inevitable and always necessary, right? And, you know, you start with this concept and then it reaches the the, the height of peak inflated expectations or whatever, and then it goes down and then eventually becomes uh, mainstream. What I'm seeing right now is something very positive. First of all, we have a lot of people who came into this market in late 2021 during the craze, and they aped in to get into all these projects, you know, tons of them, and they spent a lot of money and they lost their shirt and now they're out, Right. So you know the average volume of NFTs now is ridiculously low. But somewhere along the way, creative people started saying, all right, we can build businesses with this. Kevin Rose is the perfect example, right? He launched Proof Collective. He generated 1,000 Ethereum uh, for 1,000 members approximately back in November-ish of 2021. And uh, he made um, a couple million dollars, right? And then in April, he launched Moonbirds and he minted that out at $61.5 million, I think. And then oddities. And, but, but all along the way, he's building a legit business and he's always called it a business, right? And you've got Gary Vaynerchuk and you've got Tom Bilyeu. I'm also part of his project with uh, Impact Theory or whatever the heck he calls it. I can't remember. Uh, I think that's what it's called. They're building businesses. Like they get it. This is a long game, right? And as the entrepreneurs who have successfully run businesses are are coming into the marketplace and they're using NFTs now in some regards as a way to fund their initiatives as another way, as a way to develop a loyal community upon which will spawn all these different things, right? Like this is what's happening with Moonbirds. Uh, Moonbirds has a loyal community of people that are building on top of this. Uh, you see the same thing with Board Ape Yacht Club. I, I have a mutant ape, um, but not a board ape. I'm not going to spend that kind of money. But you're seeing legit businesses and you're seeing venture capital now come in to fund these things. And 
fascinatingly enough, you're seeing people build things. And that's what I'm excited about, right? I'm not excited about just the flippers who are in to make money and to get out. I'm much more excited about the business possibilities of what can be done with a DAO, what can be done with NFTs, you know, and how these distributed ownership-based communities can actually um, very rapidly take on much larger entities and crush them. And it's exactly mm -hmm. what I saw when the internet was coming up, right? Um, you had all these traditional entities that was ignoring these up-and-comers, right? And these up-and-comers, some of them failed, many of them failed, but some of them went on to be some of the biggest companies in the world and have crushed all of their competition. And it's happening all over again. And it's fascinating from my perspective because here I sit running Social Media Examiner and Social Media Marketing World, which are the biggest entities in the social marketing space, watching how companies like Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and TikTok and Twitter and dot, 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 dot are all trying to kind of co-op this Web3 thing, right? They're trying to say, oh, yeah, we're doing that. Facebook, in the case mm -hmm. of launching Meta, Instagram just yesterday announcing that they're going to do Polygon-based NFTs on their platform. YouTube's not there yet, but they're all kind of trying to stop their large, large communities from going out there and discovering what's really out there. And you know what this reminds me of? You're not going to remember this because you're too young, but some of the older listeners will remember this. America Online. America Online was the way we used the internet back in the 80s, Okay. And once the internet came out, they were threatened because why in the world would anybody log into America online to experience, quote unquote, the internet when they could go out and get it for free? Why would they pay a monthly subscription to America mm. online? Why would they build on the America online ecosystem and use all their technology and platforms when it was completely free out there on the internet? And I think that these large companies today, like YouTube and Facebook and all the other social platforms are saying to themselves, this if we're not careful, people are going to get sick of seeing, of, of being the product, of having every action they take be monitored, tracked, and sold to the highest bidder, which is exactly what happens because I'm in marketing. I understand this. This is what we teach, right? And that's a threat to their business model. So they're, mm -hmm. they're, they're, working, they're working very strategically to try to educate their audience on their version of Web3 so that they don't flee and go off and use Lens or whatever the next protocol or whatever um, Twitter launches, you know, or whatever uh, Jack Dorsey's working on, you know, Blue Sky or whatever the heck it's called. There, you know, this is gonna this is gonna be ridiculous. The amount of innovation we're gonna start seeing, because I think once the unlock in people's minds happens, where not only can they actually potentially have a better experience, they can actually have a financial upside because they're an owner. And that's what's coming with a lot of these platforms. So it's fascinating to me. Now, I've just done a lot of rambling, so I have no idea if I even answered your original question. I mean, uh, it, it does um, bring up a lot of interesting threads, which, you know, Web3, what also like initially attracted me was this concept of aligned incentives. Yeah, it, It's kind of like the perfect storm of what Kevin Kelly at the time described as, as like your thousand true fans, because Essentially, like with Web2, we were able to build communities, whether it's on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. But then because those communities never really owned anything from what you did, like it just felt like they, yeah, they kind of participated in your growth. But 
it was very hard to actually incentivize these people to go out there and be like your raving fans, so to speak. And I think Web3 is going to bring a lot more of that dynamic. And you see it with, you know, you mentioned Kevin Rose and Moonbirds, but like you see all these sub parliaments forming and actually like building around that and like creating events and meetups all around the world without the founder actually being there. So I think there's a lot of that um, organic marketing that happens. And I think it's just like a, a deeper connection than, than what we've seen over the years with Web2, which has become pretty transactional in a sense. And I'm not saying like Web3 is not transactional because there's always going to be the flippers and the people that are incentivized by the money that comes with it. But the pure ethos behind it, I think is very fascinating. You know, I want to riff a little bit on something that you said, because I think it's really important for people to wrap their head around what's keeping people, especially creators on the social platforms is pure vanity. It's followers, it's views, and that's it. Mm. That's it. So everybody wants to be famous and that's the promise of these platforms on TikTok you can be famous on YouTube. You can be famous on Facebook. You can be famous, but here's the problem. You don't own any of it. I can't go and download my half a million Facebook fans on my Facebook page. I can't go and download my 250,000 YouTube subscribers on my YouTube channel. I can't communicate them with them at all. The only way I can communicate with them is if I pay to communicate to them. Now imagine Once consumers and creators begin to understand that that's not the metric that matters, right? The metric that matters, this is a vanity metric. This will never, ever pay your bills. But I know some of you are saying, yeah, but YouTube shares revenue with me. Well, they do today. Doesn't mean they're going to tomorrow because Instagram Mm -hmm. doesn't, Facebook doesn't, TikTok doesn't. So there's no guarantee that that's going to happen. So that's what keeps people on these platforms is the, the, the fame. I'm famous because I have a thousand, hundred thousand or a million people that are watching my stuff. But the problem is that that doesn't allow you to grow a business. It doesn't allow you to pay the bills. And in the end it's burnout. And I know so many creators who have simply burned out. And that's why we're starting to see like um, Substack, right? Which is for writers is starting to flip that on its head. Now, all of a sudden, these journalists who worked for these really big media publications, which did it for the fame because they had a big audience, now are producing content for money, for small amounts of money. And you're getting that content in exchange for being a subscriber. And you're starting to see now this is happening on Instagram too. You can pay Instagram. Instagram will allow you to do this now, right? They're, they're all starting to allow creators to monetize the content because there's this shift happening. Consumers and creators are beginning to realize this metric doesn't matter. Views, really? I mean, like, mm-hmm. let's be intellectually honest, the average view on Facebook is less than one second, okay? It doesn't mean anything. It's a complete vanity metric. So now all of a sudden, in this new world, imagine if creators can create content and have a much smaller audience but actually get something way more valuable than fame, which is actually something that allows them to continue to create, which is enough revenue, enough money from a very small amount of audience that they can continue to create. And this is why creators are coming to NFTs. This is why artists are creating NFTs. This is why musicians are creating NFTs. Musicians are making no money on Spotify, right? It's a joke. It's just, they get on a list and wow, great. Who cares? You know, it's crazy. But in the end, Now, all of a sudden, 
we're just waiting for what I call the WordPress moment. And this is something I want to riff on for a second. Right now in the world of Web3, we have a problem, which is it's too technical and it's too complicated. WordPress, when it came out, it revolutionized the world of publishing. It allowed you and me for free with the click of a button to use open source technology. WordPress is open source technology to publish content and to become our own publication. Social Media Examiner, built on WordPress. We're waiting for our WordPress moment in the world of Web3 where there will be an open source free protocol with the click of a button. Anyone can create anything and they can promote it and sell it to the world. It's coming. I don't know who's Mm -hmm. building it, but maybe even someone who's listening to this podcast is building it. Maybe even Kevin Rose is building it. We don't know, but it's coming. And when it comes, all these creators are going to come flooding in because it's going to be so dirt simple. You won't need to worry about this or that. It's just going to work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> there's so many barriers to entry to Web3, as you as you probably know, like the first time that you start entering the space, like you're trying to be active on Discord, then you're, you know, you're, you're trying to be careful not to click a wrong link and then even setting up the wallet. You know, at first, I remember the first time I minted my NFT, I was like, is this really going to happen? Like I, I was refreshing the page like over and over again. I'm like, is it going to be like, is it going to appear on my OpenSea wallet or something? And then eventually it does. And you're like, oh my God, thank you so much. Yeah, it's <laughs> crazy. It's just nuts, you know? And it's like every step of the process is so complicated, but it's not going to be complicated for much longer, you know, because there are people investing a lot of money in this. It could be MetaMask that makes this simple. It could be OpenSea that makes this simple. But my bet is it's going to be someone we've never heard of before. You know, Google wasn't the first search engine. They were just the winner. Like Yahoo and all that. There were, there were some that don't even exist anymore that were way before Google. And, you know, we may look back and say, remember when everybody used to talk about OpenSea? <laughs> yep. You know, so someone out there is figuring this out and it's coming very, very soon. And when it does come, it's going to be like an avalanche. It's going to be crazy. When was your first uh, moment? Like when did Web3 hit your radar? And what was that moment like? Did you start dabbling slowly and then eventually you went down that rabbit hole or walk us through that process? So um, I had heard about crypto for a long time from my friend, Joel Kahn, who's the host of the Bad Crypto Podcast for years. And, um, you know, the year was 2020 and the date was March 2nd. And I was delivering my keynote at Social Media Marketing World, my conference, thousands of marketers were there from all over the world. And then all of a sudden, everybody started freaking out because the first person had died of COVID in America. And then all of a sudden, um, all these speakers were getting text messages, uh, we're canceling all your speaking gigs. And then 10 days later, the world shut down. And many people remember that. And I, because I didn't have a conference in 2021 because of COVID, I had time. And I started messing around inside a clubhouse. Early December of 2020, I discovered Clubhouse. I wrote about Clubhouse. Millions of people read that article. I said, why Clubhouse might be the next major social platform. And then we commissioned a few more articles. I started going in there a lot and spending a lot of time because we were all in lockdown. And I happened into some rooms, one of them where the co-founder of Coinbase, Fred Ursham, I think is his name, was in there talking about it. And in that room was other people like Damon John from Shark Tank and Grant Cardone listening to this stuff about crypto. What the heck is this? And then um, uh, after being really active in Clubhouse, an old friend, Jeremiah Oyang, reached out to me. He was working with this company called Rally. And he said, would you like to have your own token? 
And I didn't understand what it was. And I said, no, I've got too many CEO things to do on my plate. But then I went back to um, Joel, my friend Joel, and I said, all right, I think I'm going to take this stuff seriously. What the heck is all this crypto stuff? The next day I bought some Ethereum. It was like 1500 bucks, about $100 worth of it. And then I went down the hole, man. I started listening to podcasts every day. I started like going crazy because I had nothing but time. Mm-hmm. And I started eventually having my eyes open to the possibilities. And I, I was, I had the chance to, to mint V friends, but I didn't understand what it was. I didn't know what a half of an Ethereum was. I didn't get it, you know? So it, you know, eventually I, I did get my first NFT and uh, I think Tom Bilios um, was one of my first ones and a couple others that ended up getting rug pulled. But then I started just learning and studying and learning and studying and then Finally, I told my team, hey, we're going we're gonna to do um, a podcast in January called Crypto Business and launched that in January. And then the rest is history. We did a conference called Crypto Business um, just a few weeks ago in October of 2022. And um, how did that go? It, it was small. I'm not going to lie. You know, it was only a few hundred people, but, but people loved it, you know, and it's still early. You know, we don't know if we're going to do another conference, but you know, I, the more I learned and the more I began to listen to the right people and stop listening to the financial people and stop listening to the people that were all about flipping, you know what I mean? And started listening to, to people that were really like talking, you know, the people I had on my show that were like Jess Lost, the founder of Seed Club, which is like the Y Combinator of, of DAOs and Josh Rosenthal, who's a crypto historian, you know, all these other people that I had you know, um, on my show and I started unraveling what this stuff meant and what it could mean. I was like, okay, this is, I see, I see it clear now, clear as day. This is going to be big, you know? And Mm -hmm. right now is a great time to like learn up because, you know, I think a lot of the bad stuff has been flushed out of the market and there's a lot of exciting things coming, but man, yeah. So my journey in was kind of slow, you know, but then it became really, really fast as yours was. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it, it's very similar to mine, actually. Uh, obviously, COVID, when it hit, I think we all had more times on our hand. And so I'm also naturally a person that wants to learn about new stuff. And the first time it hit my radar was actually through Gary V. He was starting to talk constantly about it. I'm like, if Gary talks about something, you know, I tend to listen because I know he's very good at like catching new trends and all that. And then he's like, you know, I'm going to drop an NFT and it's mostly experimental and it's going to be three years of conference. And by that point, I mean, I've already consumed so much of his content. I just wanted to kind of give back to him in some way and, and, you know, participate in those conferences. So I was like, you know, what the hell, like, let me try to get some Ethereum and mint something, you know, and that whole process was a challenge too, just because of all the regulations that we have in Canada. So for example, like I couldn't use Coinbase to just like buy it with a credit card or like link my bank the banks would actually not allow that. So I needed to go on Binance and learn how to do like peer to peer. Yeah. And then eventually I'm like, okay, I got the ETH. Like, let's, let's try to mint this. And, and, you know, slowly and surely I get into it. I'm like, okay, like this is not just about owning some sort of token. Like it goes much deeper than that. When he was saying that, oh, you know, every receipt that you'll have will be an NFT. It kind of clicked in my head. Okay. Now it's not just about like, ownership of a, of an asset. It's about showing up who you are. It's cool to be able to say that, Hey, I went to that event and there's something on the blockchain that kind of proves that. 
you know, you don't need to like dig up like an old box with some ticket to a concert that you went to. Right. You could actually like in the future, I think social media platforms will allow cer certain NFTs to be showcased as, you know, what we know now as POAPs, proof of attendance protocols. I'm sure they'll show up in your wallet in some way and you'll easily be able to display it and to communicate it with your audience. 100%. To me, like what fascinates me is that you're not only a practitioner of marketing, but you know how to communicate very well. So you're author and you're also a host of a podcast. Did all those things come naturally to you or was there a medium like you mentioned at first, you started out social media examiner more as blogs, but like, how did that transition happen? And, and like, how did you become a content creator, so to speak, that educates so many people? I used to be a writer. Um, back when I owned my creative agency, I was doing a lot of the writing and copywriting, which is really persuasive writing, you know, was my, my special skill, if you will. Um, and I started writing these things called white papers for a lot of these bigger brands that I had mentioned earlier. And for those that don't know, white paper is kind of like, um, article meets brochure, right? It's got education and it's also persuasive. And I just when I was in marketing, I used to meet with these technical engineers and like they spoke a different language and I was decently good at understanding what they were saying and trying to translate it so the rest of the world could hear it. So I kind of used to joke that I was a translator back then. I would translate the technical ridiculousness into human language. And that skill that I developed over time turned out to be really valuable. And as a, when I was a writer and I wrote a couple books, I think I helped a lot of people all on the nonfiction side of things. Like one of them was called how to write white papers. And the other one was called launch, which is a marketing book. But, um, you know, writing was my gift. And then all of a sudden I started experimenting with audio, with the podcast, really another experiment, right? We talked about experiments earlier mm -hmm. and, um, I launched this podcast, a social media marketing podcast, which is now 10 years old. And, um, I just interviewed people which is not any different than I used to do. I used to interview engineers when I was a writer. So this time I was interviewing different people, but I was doing it for the world to listen to. And I'm a naturally curious guy. So I ask questions and ask clarifying questions. And turns out everybody loves that. And, mm -hmm. you know, my undergraduate and master's degree are in speech communications. So I never really used that, those degrees. And then all of a sudden I'm like, well, actually, I think I am a decent communicator. Wow. And then all of a sudden I went from being a writer to a talker, to a speaker, you know, and I started speaking, obviously interviewing people and then eventually speaking on various stages, including my own conference. And I just, one thing I know, Martin, is that the world needs clearer communicators. And I feel like that's hard to do. You know, one thing we learned when we were, when, when I was in college is that the hardest thing is to say it with fewer words, you know? Mm -hmm or to write it in fewer words. Like if I told you to write your life story in a paragraph, how hard would that be? Very hard, yeah. right? But if I told you you had five pages, you could probably get it done, right? So it, it takes a lot of preparation and process to understand how to communicate well. And then eventually when live video came out on the scene, I started experimenting with, I wonder if I could just go live with very little preparation. And I wonder if I can actually and that's hard because when you're live, like I did a 30 day commitment where I was going to go live outside with a selfie stick in my phone. Sometimes I was hiking trails and like a bee would fly in my mouth or I'd get a branch smack me in the head or I'd lose connection. 
but you have to walk. You have to be careful that you don't crash into something and you have to entertain the audience while you're live. That developed a whole new skill set. And then eventually mm-hmm. I started a talk show that was live, you know, and then the idea of, okay, when you're live, it's a different kind of talking because you have to make sure that there's no dead air, right? And you have to engage the live audience. So anyways, long story short, um, anybody can develop these skills. You don't need to have a master's degree. You don't need to have, you just need to practice it. And that all circles back to the industry that we're talking about right now, which is the web three industry. Um, it takes preparation. Like I asked you to send me in advance or we agreed that we were going to talk about these things so I could be prepared. Now for me, I'm not even going off that because it's just my, you know, if I'm intellectually honest, I just like to be prepared because I don't want, I don't want you to ask me a zinger of a question that I can't answer, but there's a good chance you could probably ask me anything. It's just my self-confidence isn't there yet, which is crazy considering how long I've been doing this, you know? Um, so I'm rambling a little bit here, but you know, I think the world wants to hear clearer communication. And I feel like that's what's lacking right now in this crypto web three industry. There's just a lot of people rambling and not teaching. And I think teaching is what's necessary. And I think that's hard work. And a lot of people aren't willing to put in the jobs to make that happen. Yeah. And I think like one of the main key to clear communication is also listening. And I feel like in, in this space, there's... I'd like to think that there's a lot of listening going on, but there's also a lot more just talking, people wanting to talk over each other and then eventually like trying to prove a point. If we just sit, you know, sat back and instead of replying right away to a tweet and being like, you know, angry about something and trying to like prove the other person wrong, just take a step back and actually process it and listen to what the other person is really saying. And I think that helps a lot with clear communication, especially with, with founders, you know, a lot of times people are very accepting of a lot of mistakes that founders can make. Like it surprised me how much a lot of like scandals that happen in Web3, how much like people are just, you know, can move on to something else so quickly. And I think a key part of that is when a founder kind of admits that, yeah, I kind of messed up here and I didn't necessarily anticipate this because we're all human and we're experimenting with this space. And I think like admitting that and not being so, uh, so arrogant and to say like, I, I know everything and I'm, I'm going to do it my way. As we move forward, I feel like there's more and more of that listening that's happening, which is positive on my side. I think it's, you know, we should unpack why, because the why is really important. Kevin Rose has done a great job of this, as you know, right? With the CCO and with the original founder who you had on your show that ended up leaving and uh, with the uh, oddities release, um, you know, with people not necessarily happy with the art or the way it was done. He's been super transparent and very, very good with getting out ahead of challenges. Um, but he's an anomaly. Most people don't do this. Most people go dark. But I think that the reason why the Kevin Roses of the world are actually going to be the model that a lot of people are going to follow is because of the financial side of the equation. And I think this is worth talking about. When you have an audience of followers on social media, you don't really care if some of them don't agree with you or not because they're not paying your bills. Does that make sense? They're not the people that are invested in you. Mm-hmm. When they are invested, even when you even when you are a company that makes a product and you screw up, most of those consumers that bought that product are never going to know. They don't care. But the investors are the ones that matter the most. So the investors are the ones that could go and 
sell their shares in the company. The investors are the ones that could go dump their NFT projects or their tokens, right? Mm. So because there's this financial incentive to get ahead of this, it's forcing people to be way more open and transparent about their mistakes because they know the alternative because they've seen it happen on collections. They've seen what happens when all of a sudden they claim that the founders rug pulled them and the collection goes to nothing. It eviscerates their entire business model. So because there's this accountability that comes in the world of Web3, because Kevin Rose feels personally accountable to the thousand or so proof members and the 7,000 or so uh, moonbirds and the however thousand oddities there are, he knows that they're going to be the linchpin to the success of his business. And his reputation and reliability of what he's trying to build is completely on the back of these investors. But he gets that because he is a venture capitalist. Mm. He also gets it because he's owned businesses before and he's had investors. So he gets that, but others don't. But eventually, you know, everyone will understand that. You know, you have to be very, very, very open and address uh, the concerns of your investors. And that's exactly what you're dealing with in the world of Web3. The, the owners are the investors. Yeah, it's it's been interesting to see how it changed over the past couple of months, because as you know, maybe six, seven months ago, any project, even though they didn't have any real substance, could could mint out just because the market was so hot and there was so much money in the system that you didn't even need established founders. It, the moment you had some sort of PFP looking kind of thing and you talked about maybe making some sort of metaverse play, yeah. like like people would be, oh, okay, sure, I'll mint it, you know? Oh, and yeah. now as you move into, I hope like, you know, we're, we're not going there, but I think like it's, it's also like early signs of like recession and everything. People are way more considerate with what they invest in. And especially when it comes to founders, like the, the word that you said was perfect, the accountability to talk to these investors because they've put their money and their trust in you. 100%. Is there any challenge that you see in the Web3 space that a better way to phrase this question would be, is there anything that you feel we should anticipate and how can we prepare for that? I think if we think about the challenges, most all of it has to do with adoption right? The user adoption. Shark Tank's Mr. Wonderful, Kevin O'Leary, if you ever watch Shark Tank and they come up there with this great product idea, he says, you have a problem. You have a customer education problem, right? He says this all the time, right? When it's not obvious what the heck it does. So we have a problem, which is most of the world does not have any sense of what this is. And we have a customer education problem. And you know who saw this early, obviously, is Gary Vaynerchuk, right? He tried really hard to educate people on how to set up a MetaMask and all this other kind of stuff so they could get into his project. But we still have a customer education problem. And this must be fixed. That's the first problem. And those of us that understand this space understand it only because we had to go over and under mountains and through, through streams and through dark alleys to figure this thing out, right? This is not easy. Um, the second thing is we have a communication dissemination problem. So we talked about the importance of communication earlier, right? Well, Twitter and Discord sucks mm -hmm. as your primary communication platform, right? I mean, think about it. How many Discords are you part of? I know I've got at least 20 or 30. I can't keep up with them all. And then you go in there and it's who knows what channel it's in, right? And then Twitter, unless you're starring them or whatever to get those notifications. And sometimes they just go so many times you can't even keep up. Most of these people don't use email to communicate, which is crazy. Because mm -hmm. web two is 100% about email. 
Every big company in the world of Web2 started with email. Facebook asked for your email address for a reason, because they notify you. Uh, or they ask for your phone number because they notify you. They need the communication channel, right? There is no easy communication channel so that when you do buy something, how do you know what to do with it? How do you know when the changes are happening? And that sucks from a creator's perspective. If you created a project and you can't communicate with your audience, good luck, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, good luck. And then I already talked about this WordPress moment, which is we have a tech issue, right? All right. Do I need to buy Solana? Do I need to buy Polygon? Do I need to buy Tezos? Do I need to buy Ethereum, Bitcoin? I mean, it's like crazy. Which one of these things do I need? You know, and it's, it's kind of ridiculous. And like in your case, okay, my country doesn't allow it. I got to go use a VPN to get into another country, or I have to go use some other country's service. And then I have to figure out how to use Uniswap to do this and the other thing. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's madness, right? Yeah. It's like, I, what, what is wrapped ETH? I remember the first time I saw like WETH, I was like, what is this? <laughs> I know. It's like, what the heck? And it's like, you know, these are problems that um, all must be solved. We need to educate the world. We need to get the communication layer resolved. Hopefully there'll be a protocol that will be developed that will be a new something like text messaging or email that will allow communication. And then we've got this technical challenge, which they're all massive challenges. So I think we're a ways out, you know. Um, now on the flip side of it, those that are really, really smart will see this as an incredible opportunity because we are early. And when was the last time you were early? Think about it, right? How many people listening right now wish they got onto YouTube earlier or onto TikTok earlier or grabbed their domain name before somebody else would have snagged it? You know what I mean? You just think about all these things. Imagine what you could have done if you had this knowledge and you started earlier, right? Now um, we're in this, in this age where most of the world, you say NFT, they run for the hills. You say crypto, they run for the hills, right? Well, okay, so this is a great opportunity for us to learn and to build without rushing. That's how I look at it. This is an incredible opportunity to go deep and to just say, all right, for the next six months to a year, I'm going to learn this stuff with maybe the intent that I'm going to launch a project here or a project there. And uh, I'm not going to rush because when we were in the bull market back a year ago, you felt like if you didn't get in now, you were going to lose your opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. Now it's the exact opposite, which is great. You can take your time, you can learn, you can figure this stuff out. You can let other people go before you and you can build on the back of their shoulders because everything is open in Web3. Mm -hmm. Everything is open source. Everything is copyable. Everything is changeable. Everything is free free to the world. Like you can go out there and steal somebody else's contract if you want, or build a new cryptocurrency if you want to by copying Ethereum. I mean, you can do all these things for free. And that's kind of exciting. It's funny. You mentioned that like, at first everything seems crazy. Like for example, you, you, you talk about NFTs or crypto to most 90% of people will kind of run for the hills, as you mentioned, but I'm sure it was the same way when, you know, back when email started. How about Twitter? Everybody was saying, what do you need this microblogging? You can only blog 140 characters. What the heck? It was literally called microblogging back then. And who cares about like what you had for lunch or where you are? Like, why would anybody care about that? Right. And now here we are, the richest man in the world just bought Twitter for what, 40 some billion dollars. Right. So yeah. obviously it was something important. We just didn't understand it. Yeah, I mean, it's always the same patterns. When people don't understand something and there's a lot of this friction because it's obviously the, the nature of the game right now is that you have to be on Discord, on Twitter, uh, you have to make some sort of wallet. All of that seems so distant for people. But the moment that these things 
gradually seep into society. Little by little, you see Twitter has that hexagon profile picture kind of thing. Uh, Facebook renamed to Meta. Instagram is all of a sudden like now when you open your Instagram page on top, it says like connect wallet to add your digital collectibles. Right. I think little by little, like that's what happens. I know Starbucks is also working uh, with someone that I know. Uh, he's he's from the Coffee and Captain show on Twitter space. His name is Bunchu and he's helping Starbucks being onboarded onto like NFTs and they're going to use a uh, Polygon for their you know reward system and all that. Then Little by little, all these companies are going to come in. They're coming. They're already coming. And that's, that's exciting. It's not too late. I mean, like it's, it's fascinating. This is why I started my crypto business podcast, which is now called the Web3 Business Podcast, or at least it will be in the next month, because I'm really talking to people who are educators or creators, and I'm asking them the hard questions that everybody wants to know, like, how did you do this? You know, or what are the things we need to know about this? Or what are the things we need to know about that? Because I believe that the next Mark Zuckerberg or the next Elon Musk is, is literally working right now, right now on something or has an idea and is listening to us right now. And maybe in two years, that idea is going to come to fruition and it's going to change the world. What's awesome is that we have all the technical infrastructure kind of in place to be able to pull this off for cheaper and for faster. Exciting times for everyone listening. If you haven't already go check out uh, the podcast crypto business, which is going to be renamed web three business. Is that yes. right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I just listened to your episode called uh, how to launch an NFT project. Cool. Really awesome. Good, good stuff. Well, Michael, it has been a pleasure to host you on the show. I think through your work, you've helped millions of businesses, mine included discover how to best use social media to connect with customers and, you know, to really build awareness on a broader scale. And I'm excited to, uh, for this journey where you're going to do it with web three as well. And we're, as you were saying, we're all experimenting and uh, we kind of treat it as our own, like a uh, scientific lab, so to speak, and we'll see where it brings us. But, uh, nonetheless, like, it's really cool to feel like we're part of something. And these are like the early days. We're going to look back at this and we're going to be like, wow, okay, that's crazy. As you mentioned, like, we're going to look back at OpenSea and be like, I can't believe we used that at that time, or I can't believe we were, we had a MetaMask wallet. What is that? Well, and I just want to throw this out there for anybody who's listening that might be a newbie. Um, if you reach out to me on Twitter, which is Mike underscore Stelzner, S-T-E-L-Z-N-E-R, and you DM me, I'm working on a free course, uh, which I don't know when this podcast is coming out, but it's nearly done, completely free, no strings attached. Um, it's about two to three hour course that will literally go you from, from zero to actually being able to purchase your very first dot ETH ENS domain NFT, set up your MetaMask wallet, understand all the concepts, like, and all the stuff that we've been talking about. So if everybody just DMS me on Twitter, I will get you a link to that. And, uh, or if you just want to let, let me know what you think about this show, Martin, it's been a real pleasure. Michael, thank you. That's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please consider leaving a review for me. Um, it's always super helpful to get that kind of feedback uh, of what I'm doing right, what I could improve. And uh, so if you can take 13 to 35 seconds of your time to share some thoughts with me, I really appreciate it. Thank you again for listening. And uh, until next time.